this episode of Engineering Matters. The valley of death uh, is, is the part between having demonstrators and prototypes and actually having, a, having something being sold. And it's where something like one, uh, 9 out of 10 uh, new innovations fail. People might say they're collaborative robots or cooperative robots, robots without fences. These things can become mobile and you can have a sort of uh, Uber of calling, if you like, and a licensing model which, which reduces the costs for users and, uh, and basically gets it thoroughly tied into the Internet of Things. There isn't another one in the world that can do what this one does. Nobody else has done this before. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Ballantyne, and in this episode, we're getting to grips with the fourth industrial revolution and exploring the technology that's going to propel manufacturing into a digitally connected future. To find out more, I went along to the University of Sheffield's Advanced Manufacturing Research Centre, which is also a catapult centre for high value manufacturing. These centres are supported by government funding via Innovate UK with the aim of boosting collaboration between industry and academia. Sheffield Centre has 110 industrial partners, ranging from Boeing and Rolls-Royce to Airbus and BAE Systems. A lot of their work is carried out in a relatively new facility called Factory 2050, and it certainly looks futuristic. The glass-fronted, donut-shaped building contains a wide array of projects, encircling a hub of engineers and technicians working from the centre. One of these engineers, sitting at the heart of Factory 2050, is Chris Greaves, who's also head of the AMRC Integrated Manufacturing Group. He explained more about what the factory does. So Factory 2050, we've been here for four years now, and it was established to kind of show people and show industry what the future of engineering may look like. Um, so we want to be cutting edge, uh, we want to stay ahead of the game and we want to show UK manufacturers um, from all kind of backgrounds what, what, what that can be. And this is a real kind of a test, a test bed, a bit of a sandpit really, um, to allow those companies to kind of play in. But instead of buckets and spades, there's robots and virtual reality headsets. We've got projects in here from down at the far end. We've got construction, we've got um, bits for um, jet aircraft at this end, we've got engine components in the middle. We're even doing bits for a classic car in one of the robot machine cells at the minute. So a real diverse uh, range of projects that we're working on at the minute with the technology. Initially, the centre started with aerospace projects, but their research really has diversified. And what all these projects have in common is their desire to evolve and optimise the potential of the fourth industrial revolution. Industry 4.0. So big push for Industry 4, fourth industrial revolution, give it whatever brand you want, but future digital technologies for manufacturing. Um, I've been here for, for 10 years now and there was a big push 10 years ago for robotics into niche industries, so things like aerospace, and that's kind of where we started. Automation being the crux of the third industrial revolution, which really began in the 1970s. But now we look a lot more at um, data analytics, getting useful information uh, from data that you're likely gathering already. We do a lot with virtual and augmented realities for both training and quality inspection and assurance. Um, we do a lot with metrology. Um, 
cobots, so people working alongside um, automation in a, in a safer way. Um, there's a lot, actually, there's a lot of stuff. But making sure that this stuff is applicable and economic is where the AMRC comes in. Taking projects along technology readiness levels as first set out by NASA in the 1970s. These start at TRL-1 and go along to TRL-9. TRL-1 is a concept. TRL-9 is it's in production and we've got room to move and it works, it's really reliable. Um, the gap in the middle where the MRC works is TRL 3 to um, sort of 7. And we coin it the valley of death. I, you can come up with a really good idea and you can kind of make it work, but unless you get the right investment and the right people and the right machines, resource and everything, your idea can die. So it can die in the valley of death and it never comes out the other side. The valley of death uh, is, is the part between having demonstrators and prototypes and actually having, a, having something being sold. And it's where something like what, uh, nine out of ten uh, new innovations fail. This is Michael Reed, a refrigeration engineer who's worked with Factory 2050 to scale up his electricity-free cooling system, Solar Polar. The idea for a renewable cooling technology was born back in 2007 at a computer-aided design conference in the UK, where Michael met solar engineer Dr Robert Edwards. And uh, in the coffee break, he said, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could use the excess heat that's uh, created on solar panels to create cooling? And I said, well, of course you can. There are a number of ways of doing that. For the next year, the two bounced around their ideas and crucially examined why such a simple but effective technology hadn't been implemented before. And we found that the main reason that these hadn't taken off was the fact that they had got the wrong metric for success. The main metric for success is the, the, the pounds per watt of cooling. So over the next five years, the two developed their idea of cost-effective cooling powered by solar thermal energy, seeking to get the technology to work for less than a pound per watt. Uh, what it does is it takes heat to heat up a mixture of ammonia and water and the ammonia evaporates and is piped up uh, as hot vapour into an area where it cools down. And you then get it condensing into pure ammonia. It then goes into a region called an evaporator, where it evaporates and uh, it's in a hydrogen atmosphere, so the physicist amongst you will know, remember the, the, the law of partial pressures, which says that any gas uh, in the presence of a different species of gas will, will behave as if that other species wasn't there. So the ammonia behaves as if, as if it's in a vacuum, evaporates and takes in heat. So that's the cooling part. The remaining hydrogen and ammonia then go into an absorber area where it meets the water that was left behind when the ammonia evaporated. But it's cool this time and not hot. So what happens is that the ammonia is absorbed back into the water and runs down into a reservoir and is fed back into the, the first part of the, of the system. It seems complicated, but it's beautifully ele elegant. And it will last, it will, as long as you're putting heat in it, it will just keep going forever. Michael says that the technology could revolutionise farming in developing countries such as India, where small farms dominate the agricultural sector. The UN Food and Agriculture Organization estimates that $14 billion worth of foods wasted every year in India due to inadequate cold storage or transportation. Solar Polar is also targeting sunbelt countries around the world as a renewable air conditioning technology. 
and also says its units could be used in developing countries where there's no electricity for refrigeration for vaccines. But to scale up to meet the demand at a price that would make it viable, Solar Polar needed help, so they reached out to AMRC and Factory 2050. Well, we found out about a scheme they did where they would do five days of consultancy for you uh, for free. So we showed them the system, we explained the, how it worked, and they came up with a way of producing the system which really owes more to car manufacture than, than refrigeration. And the beauty of car manufacture is, is that it is very highly focused on um, producing things with the maximum value at the least cost. They then hired the ARMRC to go further and provide a fully costed plan for mass manufacturing. What they did basically was they created a, uh, a, a calculator, in fact, that allowed us to investigate the various uh, manufacturing technologies and, and how much we could get that down to with the other dimension to the equation, which of course is the manufacturing volumes. Predictably, cost reductions increase with production volumes, but so does the required investment to scale up. The calculator showed Solar Polar where the balancing points were, crucially which manufacturing options were suitable for short, medium and long term. So if you're only making a thousand a month, which is our first target, then it's difficult to get down to to, to below a pound a watt. But if you're doing 20,000 a month, which is our, our medium term target, then it's, uh, they showed that it was perfectly possible to get way below a pound a watt. Solar Polar now has demonstration units being tested in India and the US. And large scale supply is not its only ambition. Smart technologies and data processing power of today means that the units themselves could be smart. The farmer who produces a crop in in February and March to March uh, doesn't really need his his cooling equipment from May till till December. So these things can become mobile, and you can have a sort of uh, Uber of cooling, if you like, and a licensing model which which reduces the costs for users, and uh, and basically gets it thoroughly tied into the Internet of Things. Sensorised units could also self-report their status. If somebody uh, phoned me up from Venezuela and said, my system is, is fine apart from, uh, apart from during March, why is that? And I can look at the, look at the data from their system and say, well, what, basically what you, what you need to do is to face it a little bit further west uh, because in March you're the, you need to uh, have them facing a little bit further west and slightly more inclined. But these are long-term objectives. For now, the company wants to use the next five years to move from small to medium-scale production, with its model replicated in a number of global markets. And this is where support from AMRC has been invaluable. Chris explains that helping all manufacturers realise the benefits of Industry 4.0 is critical across all sizes of business. If, if we're not helping the supply chain, which might, the bottom of that supply chain might be Fred in a shed who makes widgets, and he has done for 20 years, we're not, we've got to help everybody. Um, we can't Chris points out that the needs so. of the UK's 5 million SMEs are rather different from those of major corporations. Um, so we did a project on a, on a lathe, 1960s um, Colchester lathe. They made millions of them completely manual lathe um, and we had a really quick project where we said well what would we do if 
we wanted to start getting data from this this lathe to start to look at efficiency. So for about £500, we sensed it up. So we started looking at uh, motor vibrations and motor temperatures, and we looked at um, how much current it was drawing. And thus you can work out how much is it costing me? How many hours a day is it switched on? How many components am I making for that cost? Can I be more effective with how I set it up? Small companies were amazed that they could suddenly understand the detailed costs around manual tooling. We took it to Mac, big machine tool uh, trade show last April, and the feedback had been unbelievable. Um, I wish we'd built 10. Implications on the effectiveness of manual tooling are major for industries such as construction, where Factory 2050 is seeing a huge amount of interest. Chris estimates that around 30% of his activities today are in this industry, across all possible areas of activity. We've got everything on at the minute. Um, so we've got everything from, um, we're, we're focusing um, on modular off-site construction, primarily focusing on, on, the, um, on the housing segment. Year after year, the UK has failed to meet its target for new build housing, and now is seeking to deliver 300,000 every year, and we're delivering about half that. Transformation of the housing market is widely seen as the only way to achieve this target. From changing how supporting infrastructure is financed, to amending the planning system and a new approach to construction itself. So one of the big things and one of the ways you can actually tackle this, and I really have a, a bit of a passion behind this, is off-site construction. By doing manufacturing off-site, you can improve your productivity, you are not affected by the weather, you can improve your quality, the use of automation. What Chris is talking about is bringing a factory approach to housing. At the minute, the projects we've got on for construction, we've got everything from um, building facades, so looks like brick walls and rendered walls um, for the outsides of, of modules. We've got things like measurement, um, but we've also done, um, like I mentioned, discrete event simulation. So Some of the most advanced work that Factory 2050 has done on Industry 4.0 is with major investors in new technology such as aerospace company BAE Systems, which is pioneering a growing field known as cobotics. Um, we did a we did a workbench where it was a human operator doing a doing a manual assembly task, and the the cobot was essentially supporting that worker, passing components, holding components, doing the jobs that a human. Why do I want to stand there and hold something? Let the robot do that, and let the human do the interesting bit. BAE Systems already uses robotics and automation extensively, and it's the integrated sensors in the workstation that allows safe working between people and robots that make it next generation. To connect the technologies and analyse the sensor data, it uses Siemens MindSphere software. The workstation is also smart enough to recognise operators and automatically load their individual profiles, sending them appropriate work instructions, which they say is accelerating production and accuracy. The cobots now in use at their combat aircraft manufacturing plant at Wharton in Lancashire. I asked Chris to explain more about the cobot concept. Um, if you look around this factory, you'll see the robots you well, the majority of the large industrial robots are um, very large behind big fences or we have you know um, safety devices in between the human thing just to stop people getting injured cobots are tend to be smaller um, but are inherently safe so they have safety sensors built in where they can either sense that an operator is near them and stop or slow down or even if they contact an operator they'll move out the way so they've got force torque sensors that, that, that move out the way what this means is if you're trying to move from a, a, say a fully manual production line where you've got rows of people producing a product and you want to look at robotics or well, you can either do two things you can either go right let's shut this line and completely automate it like a, a car body and white line but you might not want to do that you might want to have the dexterity and the skill of human operators however there might be some repetitive tasks in that line so 
how to use a robot without putting all the fencing up and the, the infrastructure around it, cobots are a good way. Of course, another feature of Industry 4.0 is that robots are getting smart. Artificial intelligence and the Internet of Things is creating machines that can communicate and collaborate in new ways. Walking around Factory 2050, Chris showed me a plethora of robots doing things that had never been done before, including multiple robots collaborating to undertake tasks. The cell that's behind me, we've got two KUKA robots, um, a master and slave set up. The challenge for AMRC was to accelerate the productivity of the robots from taking one minute to drill a hole to less than 20 seconds while maintaining the quality, as well as enhancing its ability to drill different parts and refine the integration software between the two units, which includes a vision system that allows it to self-monitor. We got it up to the TRL7. We don't, don't take it any further. We work with integrators, in this case it was KUKA, that uh, put it into production. It went into production at BA Systems in 2017, I think it was. Um, it saved them a lot of money over their original business case. I think it was $69 million. And this is the real promise of Industry 4.0, where better use and capture of data can enable smarter automation and increase productivity. The return, return of investment, and it's fairly common across our partner, BA equal 1 to 22. So for every pound they've spent, they've saved 22 in production. And that's, uh, you know, that's something we're proud of. That's what we're here to do, is, is, is aid UK production. Opposite these countersinking robots towers another KUKA machine. This time, a KUKA Titan L750 that looked rather familiar. Then I realised, thanks to my children, I've watched the Transformer movies approximately 17,000 times. And as it towered over us, sheathed in black with its silver head directed towards the workbench, it reminded me of a Decepticon, the evil self-configuring robots from the Transformer series that were seeking to conquer the universe. This is something that we um, worked with Siemens Electro Impact um, and KUKA uh, to develop. So underneath, the, there's a big uh, you know, robot under a coat, essentially. From behind its screens, the robot towers over us. I'd say it's nearly three metres tall. It weighs 4,750 kilos, which is around the same as an African bush elephant. And it's got a four and a half metre reach. Its payload of 750 kilos means it could lift 12 of me. And any second now, I'm expecting it to make a whirring, clicking sound and transform into a car or a plane and shatter through the glass walls of Factory 2050 as it makes its escape. There isn't another one in the world that can do what this one does. Nobody else has done this before. I knew it was a transformer. Underneath there is a standard robot that we've upgraded. So we've retrofitted encoders to the joints. We've improved its accuracy. Um, the end effects, the tooling on the end there is um, a very large machine uh, spindle. Um, so we can do drilling and milling uh, in this cell. OK, so it's not a transformer. It's actually the world's most accurate milling robot. Our intention was to create the world's most accurate robot of, of such a scale uh, to, do, to do milling. Um, we were never intended to actually to get it as good as we got it. Uh, our intention was to do roughing finishes, to sort of essentially produce products that are slightly oversized, so 0.3 of a millimetre oversized. So then you can free up time on your expensive machine tools, CNC machines, uh, and do the fine work on there. Um, we got this robot, I think our... Uh, uh, average error is 94 microns now, so human hair is about 100 microns, so pretty good. The next bit that we're looking at this is, is drilling um, what we say difficult holes in, um, uh, in uh, titanium. So for the aircraft industry, again, um, people two, three years ago would say a robot cannot do this because it doesn't have the stiffness. And we are working with, um, with uh, some of our partner companies and Electro Impact to, to prove this wrong. 
The advantage of this, explains Chris, is that unlike CNC machines, the robot could become a one-stop flexible cell, performing a variety of functions, much like the reconfigurable cell that also sits in Factory 2050 as a way for small businesses to investigate robotics. This cell is our recon cell, reconfigurable cell. Um, so quite a large robot in here, it's an ABB, 200 kilo payload robot. It probably weighs two or three tonnes. Setting up the robot's time-consuming and could be a barrier to entry for small firms interested in robotics and automation. It takes us a few weeks just to get a basic cell up and running. Um, somewhere there is a charge for that. So um, the big companies can perhaps absorb this charge, but for a smaller company, that might be a non-starter for the project. Since setting up the reconfigurable cell 18 months ago, Chris says 12 projects have been undertaken for SMEs, with some having a major impact and going into production, and others highlighting what not to do. And sometimes the outcome is, no, you can't do it like this. Providing a place for firms to test out new technology means that AMRC's Factory 2050 is helping businesses face their biggest challenge how to benefit from Industry 4.0, where sensors, artificial intelligence and the Internet of Things are becoming a framework for smarter manufacturing. From integrating robots with people to machine-to-machine -to -machine communications, new applications are emerging day by day. But according to US consultant McKinsey, only 30% of companies are capturing this value, and many flounder in what Chris called the Valley of Death and McKinsey called Pilot Purgatory. But as Factory 2050 is showing, the right investment and support can unlock massive savings for small and large businesses alike. By 2025, McKinsey says that Industry 4.0 technologies could create over $3.7 trillion in value for the companies that are employing them. If the investment ratio that Chris talked about of a pound invested to give £22 back in value is correct, then the reality is that firms that don't adapt to the digital world will be left behind. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media, hosted by Bernadette Valentine and produced by Ross McPherson. Edited by John Young and fact-checked by Rian Owen. Our executive 4.0 is Rory Harris. Engineering Matters can be found on all podcast apps and on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media. If you like us, please leave a review, tell a friend to have a listen or share us on social media. You can tweet us at Engineer Matters or read about us on Reddit, LinkedIn or Facebook. We'll be back in two weeks with an amazing episode all about providing shelter for displaced people. <laughs> <laughs>